Welcome to the Pulp Nostalgia Audiocast. This week, we have The Man Without a Head by D.L. Champion, first published in the August 1949 Thrilling Detective. Darcy Lyndon Champion was an Australian-born author who had a career as a sailor and soldier before turning to pulp writing in the 1930s. His first stories were the Alias Mr. Death series and Thrilling Detective and the lead stories in The Phantom Detective under the G. Wayman Jones and Robert Wallace house names. By the late 1930s, Champion was writing as D.L. Champion in a number of detective pulps, including Dime Detective, Ten Detective Aces, and Detective Fiction Weekly. This story is one of the Champion's few appearances in Thrilling Detective under his own name. The story is also included in our recent Brick Pickle Pulp release, Thrilling Detective Pulp Tales Volume 5, available now in both print and ebook formats. You can find it at Amazon or other bookstores, or order directly from us at a discount. That direct link is in the show notes. The Pulp Nostalgia Audiocast is a Brick Pickle Media production, copyright 2021. For more from Brick Pickle Media, visit www.brickpicklemedia.com. You can find a link to all of our books and our entire online store on the website. And just a reminder that if you like the show, please leave feedback on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And with that... On with the show. The Man Without a Head by D.L. Champion Shelton Spooner led a life of luxury as a hotel detective until mystery stalked the corridors of the Verdun, and he got the one thing he didn't want, a nice, juicy case of murder. Chapter 1. We Got a Murder Shelton Spooner lounged in the chair by the window and idly turned the pages of a magazine. Across the sill, the summer sun swept the vast lawns of Hotel Verdan, shone down on the well-oiled skins of its vacationing clientele. The periodical in Shelton Spooner's lap was printed on expensive, glossy paper. The illustrations were of incredibly handsome men who, for the most part, were embracing even more incredibly beautiful women. The stories were skillfully written treatises on the subject of romantic love. At the halfway point of one of these fables, Spooner scowled, uttered an incredulous snarl, and tossed the magazine against the wall of his lavishly furnished cabana. In the ubiquitous matter of love, there was no field of agreement at all where Shelton Spooner and the editorial board of a woman's magazine could meet. Bitter experience had jaundiced Spooner's viewpoint. Not that he'd ever married. Not that a healing braziered Venus had ever poured ice water upon his flame passion. Nor had some unfortunate experience at the age of six made him a woman hater. No, Shelton Spooner's knowledge of these things was completely vicarious. For some 20-odd years, he had been a detective. He had been a private eye, and in almost all his cases, it had been his job to apply that eye to a keyhole, gleaning the sordid evidence which would eventually end in the divorce court. He had observed women at their most ruthless and greediest. He had seen men at their worst moments. Therefore, he appraised wives rather cheaply, and his opinion of husbands was not as high as the Washington Monument. He sighed, settled more comfortably in his chair, and looked out the window to the swimming pool. He gazed, with no lust whatever, at a half-dozen scantily clad women who chattered at the edge of the pool. A slight breeze passed over the sill and flicked the ash from the end of his cigarette. It fell at a disintegrated gray mass to his vest. Spooner sighed again and scratched his head in an abstracted manner. This characteristic gesture transformed his entire appearance, by no means for the better. His worn gray toupee, which rather resembled a slightly mangy octogenarian rat, slid across his scalp until it completely obscured his right ear. He did not adjust it any more than he had brushed the ass from his vest. He was wallowing in vast and secure contentment. For years, he had scrabbled about a highly competitive world, snatching a dollar here and there as a chicken 
snatches corn on a submarginal farm. Now he'd achieved a munificent monthly salary along with a luxurious cabana. From behind him came a horrible cackling sound, the sound of a thousand eggshells being crushed. A voice, high, pitched and shrill, said, Get a load of that one in the white bathing suit. Golly, if I was 50 years younger... Shout Spooner turned in his chair to face Willie Lightfoot. Willie linked an ancient, lewd eye and left to Spooner's imagination the immorality he would have committed half a century ago. Hello, Willie. I didn't hear you come in. No one ever hears me come in. By Godfrey, I could sneak up on a rabbit with his ear cupped. He sat on the edge of the bed and opened a toothless mouth. Again, a weird cackle filled the room. It was a grating and unearthly sound which would have struck fear into the heart of a stranger. Shout Spooner, however, knew that Millie was... Overcome with mirth, he was laughing. Willie Lightfoot, not to put too fine a point upon it, was a character. No one, including Willie, knew his exact age. However, whenever the names Barack, Hoover, or other hoary celebrities were mentioned, Willie made it quite clear that he regarded them as young and pushing upstarts. He was thin and bent. His clothes were unpressed and shabby. From his right ear dangled the cord of a hearing device, which was necessary to him as water wings to a dolphin. Some seven years ago, Willie had appeared out of a blizzard one morning and attached himself to Spooner's payroll at a salary of $15 a week. He had remained there ever since. The deal, however, was neither completely charitable nor one-sided. Willie Lightfoot possessed qualities which fitted perfectly into Spooner's profession. Willie was the most unobtrusive, nondescript human organism that ever existed. No one ever noticed him. If he sat opposite you in a restaurant, you'd never know he was there. If he was a neighbor at your ball game, you'd never recognize him next time you saw him. He was probably the only living man who could blunder into a potter room and get out again without being observed. He affected a pair of thick lens spectacles which he needed like an eagle needs a telescope. His tremendous shoes were sold and healed with thick rubber, a fact which enabled him to move like an Indian tracker. He was a perfect eavesdropper and an accurate eyewitness. Defendants were stricken with horror and amazement when they heard Willie's testimony concerning their most guarded secrets. Now, Willie took a battered, evil-looking pipe from his pocket and proceeded to fill it the cheapest tobacco ever swept from the floors of a Carolina warehouse. Shelton, we was crazy to take a job like this. Spooner scratched his toupee. This time it slid forward, obscuring the vision of his right eye. Willie, we've discussed this before. I hold my original opinion that you're an old fool. Willie Lightfoot leaned forward. He cupped a gnarled hand about his hearing device. Hey, how's that? Don't pull that deaf act on me. You can hear like a submarine detector and you know it. Willie grinned, then grunted. Jet's a couple of sissy ducks, hotel detectives in a summer resort. If we ever introduced Edgar Hoover, he'd refuse to shake hands with us. Shelton Spooner pushed the toupee out of his eye. Now listen, for a guy who looks to be 100 years old, you have an extremely juvenile mind. When we sat around in our Times Square office waiting and praying for fat matrons to engage us to prove that their husbands were knocking hell out of the Seventh Commandment, a buck was mighty hard to come by. Now we have a cinch. I'm a house detective in an eminently respectable resort hotel. There's nothing to do, and we eat with astonishing regularity. We can also put a dollar aside for a stormy day. What more do you want? Willie Lightfoot moved uneasily on the edge of the bed. Godfrey, I don't like this job, and I didn't like our other job either. Divorces! What sort of job is that for detectives? Spooner sighed. There were occasions when Willie, despite his shrewdness, behaved rather like a child. Detectives should do important things. Such as murders, spy stuff, arson, and... Willie cocked a bright eye out the window toward the swimming pool and thought of another felony. 
You're an old goat, began Spooner, and then the telephone rang. Willie Lightfoot reached out and picked it up. He said, hello, into the mouthpiece. He was silent for a moment. Then he said in an exaggerated, shocked tone, do tell. His voice was suddenly one of outraged morality as he exclaimed, can such things be? He listened again and said, yes, ma'am, I'll tell him. He'll tend to it right away. Then he hung up and his ghastly, cackling laughter echoed through the elegant room. Shelton, that was room 802, you know it? Spooner nodded. He was acquainted with 802. She was an angular schoolteacher possessed of gray hair and a flat chest. She had an excellently functioning larynx and a constantly moving tongue. She was, in short, nosy, grills, and a scold. Well, she's complaining there's a man in the next room. Spooner shrugged. So what? Maybe they're married. Willie shook his head emphatically. No, sir. She's already checked that. When she heard this guy talking loud in 803, she went downstairs and checked the register. That room is Miss Harry Harbord. So, what does she want me to do? Put a stop to this immorality. Though I bet she's got her ear to the wall and is hoping for the worst right now. Spooner reluctantly got out of his chair. All right, I'll look into it. I'll be right back. As he walked toward the door, Willie chuckled like an old hen. Detectives! Putting guys out of hotel rooms. Then he went over to the window, singled out the girl in the white bathing suit, and gave herself, himself over to the study of certain aspects of anatomy. Spooner walked to the main building and knocked discreetly on the door of 803. Nothing happened. He knocked again with no result. He ran his fingers through his hair. His toupee backed up until it was draped over the nape of his neck. After a thoughtful moment, he took the hotel passkey from his pocket, inserted it in the lock. He opened the door of 803 and stepped across the threshold. He stood there for a paralyzed instant, blinking rapidly, aware simultaneously of a vacuum at the pit of his stomach and an ice cube at the base of his spine. He slammed the door hastily behind him. He walked across the room to a point halfway between the window and the bed. There was an expression of urgent alarm on his face as he knelt at the side of what was presumably the corpse of Miss Mary Harbord. She was a woman of perhaps thirty, tall, slender, and with a bill which would have caused a gleam in Willie Lightfoot's eye. She was dressed in a white negligee, the top of which was by no means its original color. She lay on her back, and her unseen eyes stared at the ceiling. The red slash in her white throat extended almost from ear to ear. The knife whose blade had obviously killed her lay red-stained on the carpet at her side. Futilely, Shelton Spooner touched her pulse. As he had assumed, there was no answering beat. He blinked again and stood up. As he did so, he knew there was a wide smear of blood on his left hand. He jerked a clean linen handkerchief from his hip pocket and rubbed the crimson stain off. He scratched his toupee frenziedly with both hands and gave himself over to deep thought. Certainly no one likes trouble, but Shelton Spooner was more allergic to it than most men. He experienced no difficulty in turning down the fattest fee if he suspected a case would involve any personal anguish, physical or mental. Murder was something he wanted very little of. When that murder took place in a hotel where he held the job of house detective, he wanted no part of it at all. He crossed the room and stood for a moment before the dressing table mirror. He adjusted his toupee. He examined himself to make sure he bore no bloodstains. He examined his hand again with his handkerchief, then he went quietly out into the hall and rang the elevator bell. Barry Blount, the manager of the Verdun Hotel, was a stout man and of a cherubic countenance. He was possessed of two chins and a professional smile which rarely left his lips. His job required to combine the qualities of a host, a shepherd, and an ability to collect overdue bills without ruffling the temper of his guests. In all these things, he succeeded admirably. On this particular afternoon, he was studying his account's figures with satisfaction when Spooner came into his office and slipped into the chair on the other side of the desk. Blanc greeted him heartily by name and added, How's the job? 
Shelton Spooner quelled the uneasiness within him instead of the proper note of regret. Well, Blount, I'll tell you, it's not quite the sort of work I'm fitted for. I've got a couple cases to offer me in the city. Don't be silly. This job is a cinch. Nothing ever happens at Verdon Hotel. All you have to do is sit still and draw your pay. Exactly. It makes me feel guilty. It was true that Shelton Spooner felt guilty, but not for the reason he professed. It's too quiet here, Blount. I hate to let you down, but I want to offer my resignation. Blount shrugged his huge shoulders. Well, if you insist, when do you want your resignation to take effect? Now, said Shelton Spooner, and there was vast relief in his tone. I can get the five o'clock train out of here. You can get someone else easily enough. Blount looked disapproving. You might have given more notice, but a dare say that Verdan can get along for a day or two without a house detective. The job's only for front, anyway. Heaven knows we have no need for the law here with our high-class clientele. An invisible burden slid from Spooner's shoulders. He stood up, saying, Thanks a lot, Blount. I'll get back to town right away. You can forget about the few days' salary you owe me. I... And at that moment, Willie Lightfoot came into the room. His face was lit up like a television studio, and his eyes glittered. Shelton, he cried. Mr. Blount, we got a murder. We got a murder. Chapter 2, Upon Ticket. Willie made the announcement with the fervor of a child who has just discovered the Big Rock Candy Mountain. Shelton Spooner wondered bitterly if Willie would jump up and down and clap his hands. Yes, sir, went on Willie, glowing like a happy headlight. I got tired waiting for you, Shelton, so I went downstairs to 803. There was no answer when I knocked at the door, so exercising my authority as assistant house detective, I got a master key from the desk and let myself in. There she was on the floor, dead, her throat cut ear to ear. Willie Lightfoot paused for breath, beaming upon his audience, whose response was by no means as enthusiastic as his recital. The habitual rich red color had drained from Blount's face. The cold apprehension which settled in Spooner's heart was almost canceled by the hot wrath he felt for Willie. Blount found his voice first. Ah, it can't be true. True as gospel. She's dead as a dinosaur. Come on up and look. He sounded as if he were issuing an invitation to a ball. Blount rubbed a massive hand over his face. He transferred his gaze from Willie to Spooner. Suspicion crawled into his eyes. Spooner, you were in that room before you came here, weren't you? You knew that woman was dead. Shout Spooner glared at Willie, who met his gaze blandly. He shifted uneasily in his chair and murmured a scarcely audible, Yes. You dirty double-crosser. You find a dead woman to try to run out of me. A fine pal you are. Now wait a minute. I don't mind facing trouble on my own, but I hate to get mixed up in someone else's. I'm no good you in a case like this. I might as well get out of the way and let the local authorities handle it. Blount appeared deaf to this argument. A fine pal. What kind of detective are you? Not that kind. I'm strictly divorced and guard the wedding presents, lad. Willie and I can't handle anything like this. By Godfrey, said Willie Lightfoot. We certainly can. Spooner breathed a sigh of despair. Willie was giving a most difficult afternoon. Don't worry, Mr. Blount. I've started working this case already. What do you mean? Willie reached into his breast pocket and withdrew an unsealed Vernon envelope, hotel envelope. In here, I have a handkerchief I found in the dead woman's room. He added impressively, it's got blood on it. Maybe it belongs to the corpse. No, sir, it's a man's handkerchief. A thought struck Shelton Spooner like an invisible mallet. He jerked his hand to his hip pocket. It was flat and empty. A gnawing horror invaded his stomach. There was cold sweat on his forehead as he heard Blount say, So there are 50 million men who own handkerchiefs. Willie Lightfoot regarded the manager with a little pity and vast superiority. 
Sure, there are a million men with handkerchiefs, but they all got different laundry marks. We can trace this one, see? We can find out who it belongs to, and we got the killer. Blount took heart. Why, that's fine. Shelton Spooner groaned. He said bitterly, Willie, you cretin, give me my handkerchief. Blount glanced sharply at him. Do you mean? I only mean that I quite naturally examined the woman to see if she was beyond help. In that process, I got blood on my hands. I wiped it off my handkerchief. I evidently left it behind for this superannuated Sherlock Holmes to find. Blount folded a pair of fat hands over the broad expanse of his vest. There was a thoughtful gleam in his eye. Spooner, I'll make you a deal. Shelton Spooner shook his head. I resigned 15 minutes ago. Ha! From the standpoint of the hotel, he went on, it would be great fine if we could announce that our own detective staff was working on the case as well as the authorities. Moreover, your presence could act as a buffer between the coppers and me and the guests and me. This is going to be an unpleasant period. I need you, Spooner. Spooner squirmed in his chair. Blount went on. If the coppers knew that you'd found the dead woman and tried to run out of me, that you'd left a bloodstained handkerchief in the room, they'd quite likely toss you in a cell, at least as a material witness. Spooner scratched his head. His agitated toupee cocked itself jauntily over his left ear. It's hardly necessary to tell the coppers about me. None of the things they did have any bearing on the murder. True. And I should not find it necessary to tell them anything if you remain here on the job. Spooner turned a furious gaze on Willie Lightfoot, who grinned amiably back at him. Finally, he shrugged his shoulders and said in the tone of a thoroughly beaten man, All right, have the operator call the coppers, and then let's go up and take a look at the murder room. The three of them moved out to the elevator. Blount led the way, rubbing his hands nervously and resembling a man bearing an invisible cross. Spooner followed, his shoulders bent in reluctance, riding him like a jockey. Willie Lightfoot brought up the rear. His ancient cheeks glowed like a taillight. His eyes were bright. He looked like nothing more than a child who has been just been given clear title to a soda fountain. On his previous visit to 803, Spooner had paid no attention to detail. He had been conscious of but two facts. One was the corpse of Mary Harbord. The other was his own consuming desire to make a hasty departure from the Verdun Hotel. Now, as he stood in the center of the room, it became obvious that the criminal had called with an additional motive to murder. The premises had been ransacked. Bureau drawers were half open, their contents in disarray. On the table at the side of the bed lay a green leather pocketbook. It was open and its contents scattered. It had quite apparently been searched. In addition to this fact, Spooner noted that there were two cameras upon the windowsill. He needed no close examination to know they had cost a great deal of money. Beside them were three albums designed to hold pictures. Spooner grunted. He crossed the room and opened the closet door. Expensive clothing was draped on the hangers, though it was obvious from its rumbled condition the killer had also conducted his search here. Beside the clothing, the closet contained a great deal of expensive photographic equipment. Shelton Spooner turned around and dropped into a chair by the window. Blount stood at the foot of the bed regarding the body of his guest with horror, not completely untempered with indignation. He shook his head miserably and lifted his eyes to heaven. Did she have to get killed here? Aren't there hundreds of other hotels? Obtaining no reply from above, Blount centered his gaze on Spooner. Well, get to work. What do you expect me to do? How do I know? Do whatever detectives always do. Look around, find clues, get confessions. Do something. Shelton Spooner closed his eyes as if he were a man undergoing great suffering. I'm in enough trouble. I don't propose to get in any more messing around before the coppers get here. After they've done their checking, I'll do what I can. His tone implied that what he could do was not going to be very much. Across the room, Willie was still beaming happily. Spooner shot a venomous glance at him. He reflected that if Willie had kept his nose 
out of room 803, they could be safely back in town, sitting in their dingy midtown office. Never before had Shelton Spooner regarded that office as anything but distaste, but now his heart overflowed with nostalgia. It was late afternoon when the law arrived. It was personified by a dapper little man named Bagel, who was district attorney for the county, and a massive red-faced gentleman in a uniform was drooled with gold. This was Maynard, the police chief of the neighboring town of Delville. Accompanying this pair were various fingerprint men and camera access borrowed from the state police, and half a dozen nondescript coppers of the local force. They went into their act with belittling efficiency. Bagel made no attempt to conceal his contempt for such freelance detectives as Spooner and Willie. He brought questions at them and Blount, wrote down the answers, and ordered them all from the premises. Spooner went back to his cabana. He felt very much relieved. He was still furious at Willie, but grateful that Blount had mentioned neither the handkerchief nor the matter of his attempted resignation. He sank down in his thickly padded chair and glared across the room at his assistant. Willie, I'd give you the beating of your life if you're 20 years younger. Hey, how's that again? Willie Lightfoot had draped his ancient hand about his hearing device. Spooner lifted his voice and repeated, I'd give you the beating. Then he remembered and exploded. Stop that phony deaf act. You can hear every word. You're a meddlesome, senile idiot. Ah, oh, gee, Shelton, I didn't know it was your handkerchief. Anyone could have made a mistake like that. But by Godfrey, I bet I didn't make a mistake this time. I bet I outsmarted those uppity coppers. A leaden ball began to evolve in Spooner's stomach. Willie, what have you done now? Willie cackled. He thrust a hand into his pocket, took it out again holding a yellow oblong of thin cardboard. It's a bond ticket. Where did you get it? It was among that stuff on the table, the stuff which must have fallen out of her bag. Shelton Spooner clapped his hand to his forehead and his toupee bounced like a living thing. Before he could speak, Willie went on. Did you notice her jewelry on the dresser? She looked like a rich dame, Shelton. And while he was peeking in the closet, I saw a bank book in her purse. I look at it quick-like. She's got a balance over $20,000. Why are you telling me all this drivel? To explain why I swiped the hawk ticket. Well, curse you, why? Because I figure it's a clue. Why should a dame with all that dough hawk a portable radio for $5? Here, look at this. Spooner took the ticket with trembling fingers. A glance showed him the radio had been pawned in New York City four days ago. The amount of the pledge was $5. He placed the ticket on the edge of his chair and fixed Willie with an icy gaze. You're still meddling. This time you've gone too far. Do you know what the police will do to you for concealing evidence? No, but I guess it won't be any more than they'll do to you for trying to resign without telling Blount about the corpse and your handkerchief and... Are you threatening me? Willie didn't answer. He shrugged his shoulders, blinked his eyes, and looked as innocent as a freshly laundered diaper. All right, said Spooner warily. Go to bed. We'll sleep on this. I'll decide what to do in the morning. And that is the end of part one. Hope you've enjoyed this week's episode. Please be sure to come back next week for part two of our story. And remember, if you like the Pulp Nostalgia audio cast, please leave feedback on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Thanks, and we'll see you again next week.